Remember those two-part questions in exams where the first part is simple and straightforward, but the second part requires a lot more thought and depth. Well, out of a total of 100 marks, the first part is worth only 10, but the second part carries 90 marks. What has this got to do with this teaching? Let's see. Hi, this is Hanson from Archippus Awakening, a ministry dedicated to the awakening of the saints to know and fulfill our God-given Kingdom assignments. This is what Kingdom 101 is about. We revisit Kingdom fundamentals to know Jesus our King, to embrace His Kingdom that we may receive and move on Kingdom assignments according to His Kingdom ways. Will you join me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, as always, we declare you and proclaim you. Holy Spirit, come and lead and teach us, guide us into all truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's read our text, Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 to 46. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, The son of David. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did any dare question him any more. Before we dive into today's passage, I believe a review would be helpful. Matthew 22, 41-46 is the culmination of a series of exchanges between Jesus and the religious leaders. It begins back in actually Matthew 21, when Jesus entered Jerusalem to the cheers of the multitudes, welcoming Him as the King, the Messiah, the Christ. It escalated very quickly when Jesus entered the temple grounds and created quite a scene when he chased the buyers and the sellers out, prophetically signaling the end of the temple system. That prompted the authorities to question Jesus' authority. Jesus answered by way of three parables, and the leaders retaliated with three tricky questions. Matthew 22, 15-22 about taxes. 23 to 33 about the resurrection, and 34 to 40 about the law. By this time, I imagine Jesus to be a little impatient, righteous of course, with his perpetrators beating around the bush. We all know how discussions can go all over the place and get nowhere. Let's cut to the chase. Stop beating around the bush. Let's get back to the main point, the main issue. It's not just about taxes, although it's important. It's not just about resurrection, although important too. It's not just about the greatest law, although very important. See, as a really good facilitator, Jesus asks the question of his own to redirect everyone back to the main issue. It's about the Christ. What do you think about the Christ? Unknown to the Pharisees, this was to be a two-part question. Jesus asks the first part, Whose son is he? And he will follow up with the second later. 
Let's look at Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 and 42 again. While the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And they said to him, The son of David. What do you think about the Christ? Let's paraphrase this. What do you think about me? And you remember Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? It's the same idea. It's the same question. To help you answer this, here's the first guide question. Whose son is he? Now, since the Pharisees were experts of the law, they were theologians, scholars, the Bible study leaders of their day. They, of course, knew the answer. The son of David. Easy peasy. This is basic stuff, man. Everyone knows this. Christology 101. We teach this in our children's ministry. They might even have quoted the book chapter and verse 2. Let me give you the scriptural basis. It was God's promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. And this was also confirmed through prophecy in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, that I will raise to David a branch of righteousness. A king shall reign and prosper and execute judgment and righteousness in the earth. And also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, a shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and from his roots a branch will bear fruit. The son of David, of course they knew the answer. And this was their expectation as well as their understanding. It would, as we have seen, be a descendant of David. But to them, it was purely a human nationalistic liberator who will set Israel free from her enemies, from the foreign powers. The son of David. This is too easy. Full marks. I can just see them glancing approvingly at one another, patting one another's back, high five all around. Come on, Jesus. Surely you have a harder question for us. Well, he does. And here he comes. Well done, guys. Good start. You got full marks for the first part. Well, now for 90 marks, here's the second part. Matthew chapter 22 from 43. He said to them, How then does David in the Spirit call him Lord? Saying, The Lord said to my Lord, Set at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Well, since you know scriptures so well, please explain Psalm 110 verse 1 to us all. Now, these verses may not seem very much to us, but when unpacked, we will see how this question packs quite a punch, one that the Pharisees never saw coming. Jesus begins by settling the authorship and the authority of Psalm 110. In the superscription of this psalm, it reads, A Psalm of David. Although this attributes the psalm to David, not everyone agrees that this was written by David. In fact, some say it was written about David or some other king. If so, then, my Lord is simply a reference to a king by an unknown psalmist. Side note here, 
see how we can make Scripture fit our theology. But considering Psalm 110, its contents entirely, it cannot be about David or any other human king. For one, David was a king, but he was not a priest. And Psalm 110 verse 4 speaks of a priest forever. The same verse points beyond David. This one word forever means forever. And we know David or any other king cannot claim this. It also has eschatological implications not yet fulfilled at the time of David or the other kings. The Lord Messiah is seated at God's right hand. It will be a day of his wrath. There will be a judgment. His enemies will be crushed. And so seeking to end all argument about this, Jesus himself affirms the Davidic authorship, appealing to David's inspiration in the Spirit. David had understanding and wrote Psalm 110 in the Spirit. He himself did not get the prophetic revelation of Christ by himself, but by the Spirit of God. And this spiritual authority by the Spirit is recognized all over. In fact, later on, Peter himself as a Jew writing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 21, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. In other words, David in the Spirit was authorized by the Spirit. Before anything else, Jesus settles the authorship and the authority of Psalm 110 before quoting from the first verse for his question. The Pharisees scored full marks for part one, but didn't score full marks yet for the main question about the Christ. Somehow they couldn't fit Psalm 110 in their Christology. Jesus does not deny that Messiah is the son of David. Instead, Jesus reveals that Scripture teaches that Messiah is more than David's son. Now, if they can see and are willing to accept this. And that's why the second question is worth many more marks. There are two mentions of Lord in Psalm 110 verse 1. Well, it's not immediately apparent to us in Greek or in the English because both words appear similar. We need to look at the original text in the Hebrew. Now, in our English translations, we will see the first Lord in caps, L-O-R-D. And this is the translator's way of indicating that this is Yahweh. And this refers obviously to God himself. But the second is in Apolloa, capital L-O-R-D. And this just means Adonai, which translates Master. And it refers to the Messiah as Lord and Master. And so there are two persons talking here. God is talking to the Christ, the Messiah. And from David's perspective, Yahweh said to my Adonai. And hence the question, why did David call the Messiah, his son, remember, Lord? Why would King David, the highest authority of the land, call his son Lord, Master? Fathers do not call their sons Master. How can this be? And this is because the Christ, the Messiah, is not just human, i.e. the son of David. The Christ is also divine. 
And he uses the title here, the Son of Man, which is accepted as a messianic title. We get this thought and idea from Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. One like the Son of Man, both human and also divine. And of course, Jesus was also the Son of God, and that proves that he is divine. Can you see that this is Matthew's Christological intent throughout his gospel? He opens by tracing Jesus' genealogy from the son of David, Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. And then in his gospel, there are 32 mentions of Jesus using the title of the Son of Man on himself. And of course, there's God's own affirmation of Jesus as his son at his baptism. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. This is my beloved son. Jesus is the son of David, but he's also the son of man. And he's also the son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Lord, Adonai, Master, that David worshipped, spoke, and wrote about in Psalm 110, verse 1. So first, Jesus settles the authorship and the authority of Psalm 110. Second, he identifies the Lord that David submitted to. But that's not all. There is more. Sometimes, what is not said is just as important as what is said. There's a rabbinic technique of hinting, where to increase the impact of their statement, rabbis would quote a portion of scripture and then let the audience fill in the rest. For example, in Matthew chapter 21, when the religious leaders confronted Jesus about how the crowds and the children were cheering for him, Jesus replied with the first part of Psalm 8, Verse 2, out of the mouth of babies and nursing infants, you have perfected praise. Jesus was not teaching them how to conduct children's ministry. His incomplete quotation of Psalm 8 verse 2 was deliberate. They would have repeated the next part in their own hearts because they knew it very well. The second part reads, because of your enemies, that you may silence the enemy and the avenger. Jesus was referring to them as enemies, and they will be silenced. Ouch! How about Psalm 110 verse 1? Jesus quotes, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. And he left the audience to echo the next verse for themselves. Verse 2, The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion. Rule in the midst of your enemies. And here we must learn to appreciate parallelism in the Psalms, where two verses say the same thing but using different words. Well, the first part in verse 1 talks about Messiah's authority, his rule and his reign, and the second part, the subduing of his enemies. And likewise, in the second verse, it repeats and echoes the same thing. Hint, hint. Get the message? you'd better be on the right side. You don't want to be enemies of Messiah or of the Christ. And there's another hint that comes up in Psalm 110 verse 4. 
the Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Messiah is not only a king who rules and reigns. He is also a priest, according to the order of Melchizedek. Hint, hint again. Get the message? The old temple system is over. The old priesthood is over. You guys, yep, you guys, you are over. There is going to be a new priesthood under Messiah, who is also the high priest. And access to God is only available through him. Well, to help the Pharisees answer the second question, Jesus actually provides these three guide points. He settles the authorship and authority of Psalm 110. He identifies the Lord that David submitted to, and he provides hints for them to respond rightly. Now we know why this question is worth so many more marks than the first one. No point getting full marks for part one, only to miss the marks in part two. The Pharisees got the first part right. The Christ is the son of David. Very good, 10 marks. But getting the second part wrong would still result in a fail, 10 out of 100. But to get the second part right would mean considering the following. That the Christ is both the Son of David and the Lord of David. That the Christ is both human and divine. That the Christ is both king and priest. That the Christ is both before and after David. That the Christ is both the shoot that comes out from the stump of David as well as the root of David. That the Christ is Jesus, both the Son of Man and the Son of God. No wonder they were both stumped and silenced. No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. End of discussion. Decision time. Accept or reject? We know how the story goes. From this point forth, there will be no more gentle hints. Jesus hits home hard in Matthew 23. So what do all these mean for us? Is it just about having the right answers and getting full marks in a Bible quiz or a Bible school exam? Well, you know the answer to that one. Or you're thinking, thank God I'm not like the Pharisees who couldn't see Jesus as the Christ. Here's a scary thought. We may declare Jesus as the Christ readily and still be like the Pharisees. I picked up some pointers for myself as I prepared for this teaching. Allow me to share these with you. Number one, I may answer scripturally, yet incompletely. The Pharisees knew the right answers from Scripture, yet was unable or unwilling to answer Jesus completely. In today's soundbite culture, we prefer short statements and sayings. One verse is good. Half a verse is even better. We pick what we like, often out of context. Too busy. No time. Cannot remember. Huh? Don't read one part and ignore and miss the other parts. We may know what the Bible says, but don't really understand what it means. We can even score well in the Bible quiz, yet be totally incomplete in our understanding of what is required. So dear friends, read and study scripture in full, in context. 
Number two, I may be making scripture fit my own theology. I must be careful not to make scripture paint me a picture of what I perceive God or Jesus to be or would like him to be. For example, my selfish idea of what love or blessings should be. Only nice stuff, lots of money, no suffering, no harsh words or discipline. Or the opposite, my legalistic idea of God as a harsh taskmaster, always disciplining and demanding, wanting me to have a hard time. And whatever doesn't fit, I disregard or I discard. I will end up with a different Jesus, another Jesus, the Jesus as I like him to be. I will end up creating God in my own image. And there's only one word for that, idolatry. I must not make scripture fit my theology. Instead, my theology is to be framed by scripture. Usually it's not either or, but both and. I need to learn to embrace the tension as I grow and as I mature. And where I don't understand, I choose to believe still that I may understand in due time. Number three, I can know lots of scripture, yet miss all of Jesus. John chapter 5, verse 39. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they which testify of me. The Pharisees devoted their entire lives to studying and searching the scriptures. They meant well and did their best, but missed the entire point. They missed Jesus. This is how scary it is, how deceptive, and it can happen to anyone. All scripture is about Jesus. All scripture reveals Jesus and points to Jesus. Miss that, and all you have is lots of knowledge and a nice Bible study. It is so sad that there are many who can quote the Bible, but have no relationship with Jesus. These believe that they have eternal life, and yet they do not know Jesus. They can probably quote John chapter 17, verse 3 perfectly. And this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Friends, read your Bible, love the Word, memorize and study it, but don't miss Jesus. Number four, I need the Holy Spirit to fully understand Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17 remind us that all Scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. As such, all Scripture can only be understood with the Spirit and also lived out in the Spirit. We need revelation by the Holy Spirit to see and know the Christ. He is, after all, the Spirit of the Christ who seeks to glorify the Christ. He is the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Jesus the Christ. Without the Holy Spirit, Scripture will remain purely academic and intellectual. I can become proud and totally legalistic without the Spirit. The Spirit of the Christ is needed to understand the Spirit of His law that gives life. If not, Scripture is just a dead letter that kills. Allow the Holy Spirit to show you and teach you about Jesus. And when He does, and the Word comes alive, don't resist Him. Instead, walk in step with Him 
as He leads you to love Jesus more and to become more and more like Jesus. Number five, knowing Scripture must result in aligning with Scripture. The Scripture shows us the truth. However, many still prefer the lie or the half-truth. This is called resisting the truth. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 6 to 8, Paul warns of such in the last days. You will always be learning, but never coming to the knowledge of the truth. And in the end, you end up deceiving yourself and deceiving others. Knowing the scripture is a good start, but it must not stop there. We have too much teaching, but too little aligning. Jesus is not impressed with how much of the word we know. He's more interested to see how much of the word we live. And finally, number six, acknowledging the Christ means availing myself for his purpose. Psalm 110 is not only about the Messiah and his enemies. It is also about the people of his kingdom. That's us. In verse 3, it reads, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Now, this is a picture of a host of people, a multitude, rallying to their leader in a holy war. It carries the sense of, in Judges chapter 5, verse 2, in the Song of Deborah, when leaders lead in Israel, when the people willingly offer themselves, bless the Lord. The expression here in this psalm is even bolder. Literally, we can read it as, your people will be free will offerings. Remember the picture that Paul painted of a living sacrifice in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, or life poured out as a libation in Philippians chapter 2, verse 17. This is what volunteers refer to. Volunteers are free will offerings. We offer ourselves freely and willingly. Volunteers are not just those serving out of our free time, nothing else better to do. The last of our time and our energy we give to God. That's a volunteer mentality of our days. And the Bible does not talk about that. We are free will offerings. We must avail ourselves for the Messiah's agenda. In the day of His power, that we are on purpose for His purpose. We are saints on assignments, fellow soldiers gathering to our commander-in-chief in the Lord's army for His agenda and His kingdom. We've come to the end of this teaching. Are you ready for a test now? Full marks? Well, here's a fun fact as we close. Did you know that Psalm 110 verses 1 to 4 is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New Testament? Once in the book of Acts, five more times in the book of Hebrews, and including the one that we just read, that would be a total of seven times. This shows us how important this psalm is. It also reminds us of the importance of handling Scripture rightly. Let's review the pointers and the cautions I shared with you. I may answer scripturally, yet incompletely. I must not force scripture to fit my theology. My theology is to be framed by scripture. I can know lots of scripture, yet miss all of Jesus. I need the Holy Spirit to fully understand scripture. 
Knowing Scripture must result in aligning with Scripture. Acknowledging the Christ means availing myself for His purpose. Remember, having the right answers is a good start, but having the right response is truly what matters. Allow me to pose you a two-part question as we end. Part 1. Who is the Christ? If you answer Jesus, that's correct. 10 marks for you. Part 2. How are you living for Jesus? Consider carefully, for this question is worth a lot more. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for giving us scripture. I ask Holy Spirit, let it not just be a lesson that is nice to listen to, but that Lord, you will convict us to respond rightly. Not just to answer with the right answer, but to live rightly for you. Help us, Lord, by your grace. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for joining me for another Kingdom 101 teaching. For past teachings, visit our website, kingdom101.archipusawakening.org. Until the next time, this is Hanson signing off. Stay awakened, aligned, and assigned. God bless you.